John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1370.PS10618, certificate number 43485, the Universal Studios Fire. You say you're gonna leave, you know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day when I die well. Now this, um, oh, let me let me squeak my chair a couple of times for the people that that uh, keep the omnibus chair squeak Twitter feed going. That should just be the first minute of every show. Yeah, I like to feed them some. Thirty squeak. seconds of ASMR. Thirty seconds of chair squeaking. Hello, thank you for tuning in. Let me just eat this apple real loud. Did you listen to the um, Sergeant Pepper? reissues that came out a couple of years ago the um the remastered sergeant pepper tapes i don't think so did they like why would anybody want to remix sergeant pepper interesting that you should ask so sergeant pepper was recorded um on four track tape machines meaning that well just as it sounds there were only four tracks per tape machine to record all the music you hear on those albums. Um, could you use multiple? You could. You or would could, you have to stack the stuff down to one track? You uh, The traditional way of recording on four track was that you would say, r- record three tracks, and then you could submix the information on those three tracks down to the remaining track, the empty track. Once you knew, once you knew how you wanted those three mixed together. Right. So you'd have a tambourine and you'd have a bass guitar and you'd have some, you know, and some other sort of combination. You could do this with backing vocals a lot. You could mix them down. Once they were mixed down, of course, that, that track with the mix was. You're locked in. Now now the tambourine cannot get louder than the snare. That's right. The levels then are, are for the most part set, although you can still manipulate the sound with compressors and, you know, you can, you can kind of squeeze the sound so that things pop out and, and use equalizers. But the, but the mix is, you're committed to it. In practice, you can get from 12, you can then effectively have 12 tracks with a single machine. Uh, yeah. Three but down you, to one, four times or? Well, three down to one, but then you only have three tracks to work oh, with. Oh, that's true. So it's then factorial. You can, yeah. Then you can do two <laughs> down to one and then you can do, 
guess so, that's not factorial, but it is in effect nine. It's reverse four, factorial. Six, five, six, seven, and ten. And you, you can also connect two four-track machines so that there's bouncing. That it's called bouncing. You can, uh, you can, you can use, um, you know, this. What what am I trying to say? You can record from tape onto tape, but eventually you're going to have to reduce it down to, um, right. To fewer and fewer tracks, and then in a, in in your final mix, the final mix that you make of an album, you're just down to nowadays two tracks, a stereo, stereo. track left and right. In the old days, uh, when mono recordings were um, were the dominant form, you know, you're just you're reducing it down to one mono mix. But Sgt. Pepper was originally stereo, wasn't it? Well, Sgt. Pepper was both, and the Beatles mm. did this with the. The, the Beatles, for, for their friend Brian Wilson, who the, could only hear in one ear. <laughs> the, well, you don't want a stereo mix uh, if you can only hear in one, sure is, one you, ear. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why. They, that's who they made the mono mix for. Well, the mono mixes were all that st- all that uh, hi-fi equipment could play back for a long time. Hmm. Stereo was a technology, and it and the rise of stereo coincided with the Beatles' careers. But at the time, stereo was a a novelty. Mono was the way most. Uh, music consumers listen to music. Roughly, when could you get a could you get a stereo setup for the, your home? Oh, mid sixties. So well, it was right around here. Yeah, but it was for audio files only, and it was expensive. Yeah, and it was, um, and it was still from the standpoint of people making music. Um, there were there were people that understood that it was the future, but it also felt it it felt novel, uh, and, and I mean that in a in a kind of like, shallow way. Like in a bad way. It's like yeah. hearing synth or something. Yeah. Why do you need to hear a tambourine over here? It felt like a, it felt like, like a three, trick. Like 3D. Yeah, exactly. It likes 3D movies. Exactly. Yeah. If you put your headphones on, you're not fooling anybody by putting the harmony vocals over here and the piano over there. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make you feel like you're in the room. And as a Walkman it's user, a as a kid, it would be a problem when you split, um, you split your earphones, you gave it to your friend on the bus and suddenly... You only have half the song. They have, yeah, they have all the vocals and I have the percussion. And the Beatles are the classic example of that because the stereo mixes that they did of their music uh, were afterthoughts. They spent a lot of time working on the mono mix, which they consider to be the definitive version of the song. And then the Beatles would go home and... You know, Brian Wilson. All together, they go to the house they, they live together they, and help. That's right, where they open the door Each and open four doors. all into the same room. <laughs> uh, and then they would, you know, they kind of throw a stereo mix together. And in in, uh, in the style of the time, they would put all the drums over on one side and the harmony vocals over here. You know, they, they split it up truly like... I had a full set of Parlophone Beatles records on cassette and you would, yeah, the vocals would be in one ear only. One ear only. That's, and the drums in the other. Yep. And nowadays that would be, I mean, that people try to do that sometimes and they never accomplish the effect that those Beatles records had. I think they should try to do it live. Very, very <laughs> left side of the here. stage, drummer. <laughs> Far side of the other stage, lead vocals. Have you ever been to a concert where the drummer sets up all the way stage left, uh, but front, but downstage, front of the stage. Why would you, don't you want them upstage furthest from the... It was a fashion it, during the indie rock years that sometimes the drummer would be f- to one far side and the lead singer would be on the other. Probably because they didn't want to hang out with the drummer. Well, that's also always true, but, but, uh, but it was just, it was just a visual. It was kind of one of those, 
ways that indie rockers were like, hey, man, the drummer's not like behind. We're not on American Bandstand here. Yeah, the drummer's not less than or more than. He's one of us. He's one of us, so go sit all the way over there. But nowadays, <laughs> when you make a when you make a, a a mix of a band, typically you put the drums and the bass guitar right down the middle, so that they're equal in both tracks. And you can record stereo drums. You can put, you know, the toms over here or or the snare over here. But for the most part, you're trying to center the drums. What if you're Wayne Coyne? And you want the drums to just be flying all around the sound well, that, picture? Or... I mean, that's <laughs> you can use stereo really. Wrong. I mean, if you're Wayne Coyne, you can do whatever you want. But there are, uh, in the early days of stereo, you hear all kinds of Just things, go. gimmicks that seemed cool at the time. Like, wow, let's use the pan knob and have the have the guitar like go from one going? side to the other. And most of that stuff people don't do uh, because it's it's recognized that like that's a gimmick. The first time you hear it, it's interesting, but it doesn't serve the music. And in a car, it might be unsafe. You might literally think there's a little bass guitarist flying yeah, around or just like, your car with you. Oh, I feel sick. Why do I? Oh, I'm <laughs> driving off the road. And, and then also the thing, the the other thing you put down the middle are vocals, and then things like guitar and piano, tambourines, backing vocals. You can spread them out across the um, across the stereo field. And it does make, you know, a much sort of broader and more interesting mix. But there's something about those mono mixes that just, they just snap. And by that, by mono mix, it just means that each side of your headphones is playing the exact same thing as the other side. So the music is mixed together in a way that for things to be audible, you can't separate them and move them over here. They have to be in this stack of sounds. Are we finally getting to my question of why they remixed Sgt. Pepper's? Well, what you end up with, and this is the thing that that I think uh, it's very hard to comprehend. Perhaps not. Maybe I'll explain it properly. But <laughs> It's hard to comprehend in this podcast. The technology of recording music, of capturing sound, has always been way better than the technology of playing back sound. Mm. So microphones and mixers and EQs take in music and, and typically, uh, you know, uh, t- through electrical process. And we've talked about this quite a bit on the Joe Meek episode, mm-hmm. but the recording tape um, which is magnetic tape and the, and the heads that transmit that electrical impulse into, uh, into magnetic information on these tapes, it captures a tremendous fidelity that it's very difficult to reproduce the other way through speakers. Um, and this has nothing to do with the fact that studio setups are going to be more expensive and rarer and more elaborate. It, it really is something to do with recording versus playing. Yeah, this is this goes all the way back to the to early recordings. I mean, to put a needle onto a vinyl record and to transmit the bumps in that vinyl, which again I don't believe in, through through a needle into electrical signals into a speaker and then to your ear. There's there's degradation at every stage, there's information lost, but that information is captured and retained on the tape. And the fact that we can't, we've never really found the perfect way to capture all that information and relay it, um, doesn't mean that the tape doesn't retain it. And as technology has improved recently, 
we're able to go back to those recordings, like of of Sergeant Pepper, and with digital processing, get a lot more information off of the original tapes than we ever could before. So you can remix a Sergeant Pepper record, which again, you don't have a ton of. It's not like you have forty-eight tracks that you can go in and solo, and you may have four. Yeah, four, and those tracks are really economically apportioned. Like a lot of times, if you hear a, a, a track on a Beatles record soloed, you know you hear down, 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 guitar, and then it goes away. The guitar just is muted because that track also suddenly is the tambourine or suddenly is a backing vocal. And is there any reason they couldn't have kept some copy of the original before they mixed it down? Could you have kept a copy of the tambourine? Absolutely. But it wasn't always done. Well, because tape was expensive, but more than anything, storage was expensive. Huh. And if if you were working at EMI and you were recording the Beatles, if you had... If you had bounced all those tracks down to safety reels and kept those reels, you'd fill up a warehouse. Yeah. Um, and all that tape was valuable. And there wasn't at the time, and for years, and, in, and as we'll see even now, a complete understanding of what the value of an archive is. We have a sense now that every tambourine track that the Beatles recorded is worth its, you know, is worth its weight in gold. I mean, there are people who would pay $20 just for a CD of soloed tambourine tracks of the Beatles. It's an artifact of a digital era where, you know, every photo I have ever taken still exists somewhere in its original quality. And, you know, you you can get to a full archive of everything anyone ever put on social media. Right. That's a very new expectation though. And, and it's a, and we have a different relationship with pop culture. In that somewhere along the line, we decided the Beatles were the new Beethovens. But in 1963, uh, the only interest in them from a corporate standpoint was, can we get another hit? And even more so in other uh, media, you know, where things were even more disposable. We hardly have any Johnny Carson Tonight shows because NBC recorded over them with Days of Our Lives or something. That's right. That's right. Those tapes were expensive and there was no sense because because nightly a nightly talk show was It comes and it goes. So why, ephemeral. Why would we need that? This exists for the, you know, whatever, seven million people or twenty million people that are watching it right now. Right. There was no idea that now in in uh, the uh, the mid two thousands that we would want to watch Johnny Carson from nineteen seventy two. But of course we do. It's a little weird that we didn't, that I think they should have known, you know, think about predating the video age. Think about how, you know, you know, a James Thurber or even further back, a Daniel Defoe essay in some London paper, you know, that would have, pers- even though that was something you were supposed to read on the day, you know, that, that would have been published that, you know, there would have been archives kept of newspapers and books. M- music existed on, on, discs and cylinders. Well, why did we think that everything else just was for the, the live viewer and that's it? Well, it's the conflict between the librarian and the archivist and the corporate boss, the manager. Does this cost more than zero dollars? Right. And so from, a, from the standpoint of someone who is looking at entertainment as a, um, 
as a profit-generating machine, uh, the cost of storing old tapes is not insignificant, and the amount of money those old tapes are earning you at any given moment is close to zero. Show me who's going to buy a Johnny Carson skit in 15 years. Right. And, what is and the... he was wrong because VHS was invented. But... And, and, but, but, but in 1972, just imagining what the potential right. place that that would ever show, right? I mean, it, yep. it's not a rerun. You're never going to rerun those. Um, they never could have anticipated that right now, if all of the Johnny Carson show were online, it would be generating tons of income for NBC. But they could have. They just had to watch Star Trek, where there was Star a library Trek. computer you. where you could ask it whatever, and it would be like, sure, here's some, for some reason, we have this footage of the the space Nazis of planet Rigel 3. I don't know who took this, but here it is. You know, the, the precedent was there in science fiction that we would just have instant access to all video and archive and media and the exact right one would appear when we needed it. But that no one, I guess no one believed in YouTube. Well, there were a lot of futurists and, and, and certainly like librarians have known this from the very start, right? Yeah, but, but they have to. And they they're don't, like, I don't have a job if there's not a building full of things that no one kind of usually wants. And I think librarians are constantly struggling to have the resources to archive everything they want. Yep. And what we, what we have now is a lot of, I mean, there are piles and piles and piles of media that have never been cataloged. University libraries are no longer accepting collections in many cases. You know, well-known people in their field want to give their letters and collections, and university libraries are like, sorry, we got a 20-year backlog on, on indexing this stuff. We can't take your thing. Sorry, you're a great architect, but we don't want it. Right? Isn't that insane? I know. Especially considering that they're probably already laying the foundations of the Trump library. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I mean, luckily, what what media is going to go in? Like what? All the stuff he read and wrote. <laughs> it's uh, this shopping list. <clears throat> but this is this is a real problem, and it's a problem of allocating resources and allocating, I guess, emotional energy, um, because who knows what's being produced now that will have tremendous value to future links. Obviously we're anticipating that with the omnibus project. We're it. And, uh, and so, you know, all we, other media obsolete. That's right. We have made certain to, to, um, to carve our, uh, well, every transcript into sandstone and then coat it with a, with a layer of platinum. Yeah. We want something harder than sandstone. Yeah. Good. Good to think of the platinum. Yeah. You got to put the platinum on there, but, as far as the as far as the music business goes, I mean, we think about the history of recorded music, and it's really only a hundred years old. Yeah. Um, but it's we think of it as our legacy, and I mean there there are um, there are universities worth of students of of popular music. I mean, there's no band that doesn't have its acolytes, and and not just fans, but but people who study them and believe that they are important and wise. I guess fandom is like a, uh, it's a spectrum now, you know, like at the high end, you could be literally writing books about uh, uh, Henry Rollins. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are probably, there are probably 10 books a year about, about the Beatles um, or more. Right, uh, there, I'm sure there's a book about Henry Rollins coming out in the next year. The Beatles or more sounds like one of those um, capital reissues where they would, you know, yeah. get an extra album and buy like leaving four tracks off of with the Beatles. Or right, something. put put some Christmas songs on there. 
But bands like the Beatles and um, and you would think, you know, the major major artists of the 20th century that their that all of their recordings would be preserved somewhere, archived with great care, uh, because it's because we have recognized for a long long time that Paul Simon's output in the 1970s is going to have value beyond its moment in the pop on the pop charts. And, and that it's enormously lucrative. So, And we know that artists have these entourages and apparatuses around them. So surely some of that is devoted to some kind of a air-conditioned Paul Simon library in a granite mountain somewhere. Right. But there are a couple of problems with that assumption. And one of them is that we are making it in this post-digital age that you're describing. Um, prior to the advent of CDs, those back catalogs didn't really have a tremendously lucrative monetization strategy. Can you imagine the record companies when CDs were invented realizing they can now sell everything again? And that's what without, they did. Without having to record, no expenses to record it again? Yeah. With, with, a, with, you know, with a Paul Simon record from the 70s, after it became a catalog title and was no longer one that was selling tens of thousands of records, but it was just something that was in the record stores. If you wanted to go buy it, it they kept it in print. It was there. But they didn't need the masters for that anymore. They had, they had copies of copies of copies. And one thing we've talked about before on the show is that when you're talking about analog media, physical media, every time you copy a recording, you lose a, a, a lot of fidelity. So that the original master tapes, uh, the multitrack tapes, when you reduce that down to the final mix, you're also losing sonic information, a lot of sonic information. Some of it is apparent, but not audible. So what does that mean? If you're sitting in a recording studio and you've got a tambourine track and you take an, uh, an EQ, right? Uh, and you put a shelf on it. You say everything above, uh, above this, Sonic range. Frequency, yeah. Yeah, four, four, 4K, right? Uh, some frequency level. Everything above this we're going to cut out. It just provides some kind of tambourine sound you want to do that. You, you're, you're trying to put this tambourine in a mix, and you and so you want... you The tambourine's doing a thing. I see. So you, it won't interfere with other tracks if you if you limit the frequency. Right. If, you're, if you want... Uh, if, if you want the very high end of your of your um your sonic range to be occupied by someone's soprano vocal you don't need the tambourine up there what you need is the tambourine right in this very ASMR range so you cut the high frequency you cut the low frequency you just squeeze it into a spot but if you cut high frequency even high frequency that's above the range of human hearing you still can hear the difference you can sense frequencies that you can't hear the difference you don't, have to, you don't have to ask your dog you don't have to ask your dog or your dog can hear it but there are all kinds of things and this is part of the magic of recording all kinds of sonic information that that isn't strictly audible but is part of the the experience of the sound and you can cut the frequency range of a tambourine until it's as narrow as a thread and still hear the essential element of the tambourine. 
But and I'm, that's really more of a shaker that I'm doing there. But but <laughs> You've uh, never actually seen a tambourine, have you? But you can you can open that up so that it's the full range of that, and you you hear all this extra sound every time you duplicate through a, a through analog process. Every time you duplicate mm-hmm. a recording, you lose a lot of intangibles and some tangibles. It's like Michael Keaton in Multiplicity. He still looks like Michael Keaton when you do the clone of a clone of a clone, but he's doing some crazy stuff. That's right. He can't he starts eat soup. Degrade. His clothes are messy. And that degradation is another example of a thing where certain people interested in music that we that we sometimes mock as as wonks and audiophiles. Um, that stuff really matters to them. If you're running a record label and you've got a copy of a copy of a copy of a Paul Simon record, you don't care. Most people aren't going to be able to tell the difference. The funny thing is, uh, it's something where you can ratchet it up but not down. Just as an aside, I had to rent a car earlier this week, and they did. They were like, "Sorry, we don't have any mid sizes." And I was like, "Fine, anything smaller." Yeah, we don't have anything smaller. I don't want a minivan. What What do you have? Well, they just returned this Chevy Malibu. We walk over to the Malibu. It pulls out. Somebody got there just before us. So you have no cars. Well, we have this infinity. So like I rented this luxury car that I didn't want, but right. they, you know, they didn't bump up the price cause I hadn't reserved it. So I was in this really nice car for a couple of days. And, you know, at first you're like, Oh, the, you know, the leather stitching on the gear shift knob or whatever. But the thing that stuck with me was how good the stereo was huh. because I guess I had never had a car with a great, great stereo. And suddenly it's just like, you know, you're in a concert hall, even if you're stuck on the 405. And, you know, until I heard that, I was very content with my, with my copy of a copy of a copy in my car. And now that I've heard it, I feel like I'm, you know, I should have listened to the Stoic philosophers. I should never have exposed myself to a fine thing. Right. I, should have, I should have considered my own tragedies and misfortunes so I would be prepared for them. You can never go back I now. can't go back. It's like, I don't want my kids to fly first either. I want my kids to fly coach. <laughs> well, you ever, once, if you've only flown coach, you're like, sweet. This is when they bring the pretzels. Right. Right. You're not up front where you have your own, your own uh, entertainment system. Your curtained booth. Once, well, you, once you do that, you're discontent for life. That's one of the things that makes it very hard as a as a musician who's recorded in a studio to I mean it's it's impossible to duplicate that experience of listening to an album that hasn't been even mixed or mastered where you're actually able to move the faders and you miss that when you're at home just yeah, listening to you listen to a Beatles record and you're like God I wish I could just bring that track up for a second and hear it better and some of these some of this modern technology these remasters it's a, there's a six CD that just has all the separate tracks well or? or they have done that work for you so oh. the Sgt. Pepper remasters are an incredible listen because these are this is a record that presumably you've heard a million times but all of a sudden you hear so much more because they have those original tapes and they're able to, through digital processing, get more information out of them than were on the original records. It's getting better all the time. It is getting better. So it, if you have access to that original source material. Now, a lot of them, the records that got remastered for CD in the 90s, um, they didn't go back. To the original recording. There's a perfect video analog of this where something new will come out on Blu-ray and you'll be like, well, let's see if they had a fine grain negative. And if they don't, it doesn't matter. You know, they're taking it from a dupe element. It doesn't matter if you put it in higher resolution. You can't put information back. Right. And there is a certain amount of digital 
uh, trickery now that they can sort of take a grainy thing and smear it and make it seem in focus. It's bad. I mean, I think it'll fool many people. The same people who leave their TVs on that, whatever that weird 45 frame a second mode is. Right. People that watch TV without their glasses on. The Long Winters are experiencing this problem right now. Uh, We've been asked to remaster our albums for vinyl because they're out of print and uh, release our whole catalog on vinyl. Have any of them ever been out on vinyl? Uh, They all came out on vinyl on the Control Group record label in the mid-2000s, and those are all sold out. Just a limited run. Yeah, long gone. And now now it's in the works to re- master our records and put and have them come out as a vinyl set that just as an aside my my son just got a record player for the first time for a birthday present and now he's you know he's at sonic boom and easy street trying to find all the cool the albums he likes on vinyl and he's just distraught at how many albums were available for some limited run you know even some some bajillion selling frank ocean record you know they sold you know, 5,000 of those on vinyl, and now you got to pay 400 bucks on eBay. Well, I it, I think, I mean, people send me all the time um, emails asking for if I have access to vinyl, and they, they'll they link to some eBay sale of a Long Winter's vinyl that's, that's kind of like stupidly overpriced because it's a, you know, it's a captive audience, or if you if you want a vinyl of that it's the only way album, it. it's the only way to get it. They they're not available. But in the process of trying to put all the songs together to remaster these albums, we've discovered that there are a couple of tracks on a couple of records that we don't know where the master is. It just it just disappeared. The are, record are using, label doesn't have. You're it. using track to mean a whole song, a whole song, and um and in order to remaster it for vinyl, we're somewhat at a loss. Uh, and the suggestion from, you know, people in the chain is, well, we're just going to have to master it from the CD. Mm. The problem with that is that, that we, there were, there's a lot of material lost in, in getting it onto a CD, you know, the CD isn't the highest quality. And so taking it and remastering it from a CD to put it back on vinyl, you suddenly have this, it's just like you're saying, the vinyl is supposed to be uh, this preferred format, but not if right. you're listening to an MP3. And there, a, and in this case, there might be difference between tracks that might actually be audible. And that would have to, you'd have to, you'd have to, I mean, we, this isn't a done deal yet, but it's, we're, we're still looking for the original masters and they should be somewhere. Should they, should someone have had them? Should a human have had them, or is there a corporate entity that screwed up? Well, so I don't the, want to get you in trouble. But. The way that masters work in the American music industry, and I guess the global music industry, is that when a record label um, funds the recording of an album for a band, it's a in a way it's an an archaic um, sort of financial game. The the ownership of recorded music is um, is fairly complicated, fairly splintered. A songwriter owns the song mm-hmm. that they wrote. Anybody covers it, he or she gets a check. Uh, well, uh, depending, right? I mean, um, anybody covers it, yes. You, you're you're presumably going to if it's a if it's a popular recording. The songwriter is going to get publishing money from it. Yeah. 
We've seen in the early days of rock and roll that the actual songwriting publishing credit was a thing that could be stolen from artists. Um, you know, unscrupulous people would sign a songwriter to a publishing deal and they would take a huge portion of the publishing credit, which meant the songwriting credit for the song in exchange for money. Um, the ownership of the song is different from the ownership of the recording of the song. Right. Separate Grammys even. That's right. I can tell you as a Grammy nominee. Oh my God. I just want to destroy you as a Grammy nominee. <laughs> um, and the record labels own the recordings themselves. And those are called the master tapes. And for a lot of the history of recorded music, the master tapes were really the tapes, the, the possession, the physical possession of the tape was the ownership of the recording. That's how a corporate entity with st- shareholders makes sure that no flaky artist calls an audible. Right. So we've, if you've we've got them in a room, if you finished your Eagles record, you took those final tapes. Who is you here? Am I the Eagles? You are the, you am are I the all Glenn of, Fry. Am I all of the Eagles? In no, this, you, in you're Glenn analogy? Fry. Let's just be honest. It, oh, Sorry. I love Glenn Fry, but I know he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. And you are dead. Uh, you'd finish that album and you would pick those tapes up in a box and you would deliver them to the label. And that was your, you know, the label had paid the money and they owned this box. Scooter with this Brown now owns you. Right. And, they would then duplicate that recording and turn it into albums and sell them. But they, in, because they kept the physical possession of it, 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 it prohibited you or it prevented you, I guess, from also independently releasing it on a different label, from taking that and doing a separate mix of it where you put the vocals way forward and took the bass out because you hate the bass player now. And, you know, they, they controlled the actual... Recording, And you see a lot of bands that fall out of favor with their record company and actually will go and make a completely new recording of a, of an album. Squeeze did this. Taylor, Swift, Taylor Swift's doing it right now, right? Like that was, uh, that was her only workaround to, yeah, and to you make can, any money from her music. You can do that because you own the songs. It's really just the recording that they own. Uh, and we have the technology now that, yeah, Taylor Swift can go re-record her. And album. am I wrong that the record companies in this case have tried to seek legal remedies to stop her from doing so? It's the trick of the of the contract. I mean, for for decades and decades and decades, record labels were able to say we own the master, and this was the whole this was the whole problem with with Prince and his label throughout the eighties and nineties. Is your Alexa named That Was the Problem with Prince? I, I have what, no idea what why was that Alexa sound? Just, just showed up there. She got mad when she hears anybody say that Prince is a problem. Screw up. Well, she, 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 she's about to say, you mean the art, artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> uh, Prince was infuriated that his record label controlled his masters and that that was part of his record contract. And he understandably, and this is true for, I think, any musician, you, you go to all this trouble to make a record and the record company suggests that they're loaning you this money. Or, I mean, that's the deal, right? You pay them back for the money they loaned you. But their profit from having basically loaned you this money is that they own your album for the rest of your life, for all eternity. There's no, there's no sunset clause on it. You don't get your, unless you negotiate it, unless you, uh, you don't get your album back. I'm sure it's an analogy that comes from publishing, but it doesn't make sense anymore. You know, it does make sense that the artist would own you know, the writer would own those words in that order. The, um, 
the uh, publisher just has the right to put them into a book that looks like this for this amount of time. But with uh, the music industry, there's this intervening level of the performance between the the material and the product right. that you'd think would go to the artist. But the system set it up so that the intervening level of performance is owned now by the publisher, essentially. Yeah, and, and, and the system set it up for obvious reasons. Um, I can see why I would do that if I were, say, not Glenn Frey anymore, but am now... Uh, Taylor Swift. Well, I was going to say if I'm now Warner Music. Right. I can see why I would set up. The, can I be both Glenn Frey and Warner Music? Uh, wouldn't that be fun to be both <laughs> Glenn Frey and alternating Warner Music? Days. What a crazy uh, body swap comedy that would be. <laughs> Think about the alternate universe where you're <laughs> this like seven-armed Goliath, brah, Warner Music, Frey. This continues to be, I mean, weirdly, like the first record contract I was ever given uh, was at the kind of dawn, or ever handed to peruse at the dawn of the CD era. And well into the CD era, record contracts still had a clause where a certain percentage of, um, a certain percentage of the, uh, the production was assumed to break in transit. So, because albums See, were fragile. Oh, it's, it's, it's vinyl they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so 20, there's this 15% breakage clause. 15%, wow. But in the era of MP3s, did, why is that still in a record contract? Did they think about covering them with platinum? Uh, that, those were for audiophiles only, the platinum <laughs> records, platinum <laughs> albums. They do have them if you, if you sell a million copies. Can you play those, by the way? No. No. In most cases, I think if you take a gold record out of its frame and play it, it's just a, it's like Steely Dan's Asia. It's like they just, they just, spray they just had extra copies of Asia. So no matter wh- who you are. Yeah. They don't, they don't actually put your album on there. My question is, c- can you physically even play anything anymore once it's been leafed with metal? I've heard people try and I don't know if that, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I guess the aliens that find Pioneer Voyager 2 or whatever. They will be able to play Carl Sagan saying billions and billions. But the the process of what if it's cutting acci- it, what if they get it and it's accidentally Asia? <laughs> it's Asia. <laughs> Peg. The uh the, the process of cutting a vinyl album on a lathe, I don't think it would work the same way with a with a gold blank. So yeah. you'd have to it's mold it. I don't think it would work. Specialized tools. Ken, I feel like I'm getting a little thin on top. And I've always prided myself on a big thick head of hair. And, uh, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm starting to, I don't know. My hands are going up to the top of my head all the time. I'm, I'm getting anxious. You know, what am I going to, what am I going to be like with a, with a bald head? I mean, not that bald men aren't extremely attractive and virile, but. I'm, I could list right now so many bald men that I am extremely attracted to. Yeah. Uh, I could write a book called from, <laughs> from Yule Brenner to Patrick Stewart to Peter Sagal, bald men I have loved. And yet I don't. At least right now, in this stage of my life, want to lose the hair on top of my head. Yeah, I mean, it's so bound, hair is so bound up with your identity. And luckily, we're at a place for the first time in human history where if you've still got your hair but it's starting to thin, you can now do something about it besides worrying. Is uh, that true? I mean, for, for so many years, there have been such quacky remedies for hair loss. I would recommend Keeps, which is a service that uh, will... Uh, prescribe and send to you FDA approved medication for hair loss and deliver it right to your home. So you visit the doctor online 
The stuff comes to your home every month. You don't have to like go to a office to get your hair loss prescription. Thank goodness. You don't have to wait in a pharmacy checkout line. And they offer generic versions of these FDA-approved hair loss medications. So you're saving a ton of money. So what do I look to expect from these uh, these keeps treatments? Like, uh, am I going to get like some crazy curly hair, or what? What happens? Uh, you want to act quickly because often you you know it takes a few months. It can take four to six months to see results with these treatments. And, you know, and I've been using one for a couple of years now just because I was having the same problem. I was. You do have a fuller head of hair than you did. Right at the crown of of my head, it was starting to be a little bit pink. Yeah. And that's the time to take preventative measures. Um, The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair, you know, the earlier you catch this stuff, the more hair you're going to save. So, what if I was ready right now to take action and prevent additional hair loss? I've got some good news for you. Lay it on me. That involves. A promo code named for our podcast. Break it down. Can you believe it? You want to go to keeps.com slash omnibus. If you're ready to take action today to start preventing future hair loss, you'll receive your first month of treatment for free. So that's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus? Yes. I can remember that. We're living in an era where... uh, the number of record labels is extremely small. Um, And you and I were born into an era when there were hundreds and hundreds of record labels. And all of that, uh, the the condensation of record labels into a few giant mega corporations happened in recent memory. Um, It happened in the early 2000s where there was a, an enormous sort of feeding frenzy around record labels and all of the great imprints where that, that had produced all the jazz and rock and blues and soul and disco of, of the 20th century. They all in in rapid succession bought one another and gobbled one another up until really there were only three major record companies left. Um, And they are Warner brothers or Warner, or Time Warner, or... AOL Time Warner? AOL Time Warner. I don't think they lead with AOL anymore for some reason. <laughs> There's Sony, or Sony BMG. By or, the way, I'm a fully owned subsidiary of Sony. You now, are so. owned by Sony, aren't you? Yep. Uh, and then the largest of all, um, in fact, so large that it is... Uh, light, not even light can escape. Not even light can, can not escape. Not even Prince Masters can escape. It's double the size of its nearest competitor, Sony, is the Universal Music Group. And Universal is an absolute megalith that has consumed more record labels than I can uh, than I can name, but just a few. Decca, Chess, Impulse, MCA, A&M, Geffen, Interscope, Polygram. Depressing. All these... I have, I have fun associations thinking of all of those and yet not Universal Music. Right. I, I mean, every one of those labels... Uh, communicates a real thing about music. Chess records, A and M. Sure, I mean books. Books about each of them. Right. Does, how does Columbia House fit into this, though? I know they're the most powerful. Well, force in. We can talk about Columbia House, and I, 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 so Universal. Um, what what now is Universal Music U, UMG? Uh, it's, it, it even sounds awful. It does UMG. It sounds like that the evil company like, in a Blade Runner movie or something. Um. 
the foundations of that company were uh, a talent agency that started in the 1920s, um, a company called MCA. Get on the mic, my man. <laughs> wow, he's older than I thought. <laughs> um, and MCA was, uh, you know, represented musicians and then gradually uh, represented actors and then became the most powerful talent agency representing actors. Uh, Lou Wasserman worked at MCA as a as an agent and then gradually uh, when MCA moved from Chicago to LA, Lou Wasserman was instrumental in establishing the studio system in Hollywood uh, and had a, had a tremendous wow. power. King of all media. That's right. Um, and throughout the course uh, of MCA's history, it gradually merged with, um, you know, with a lot of film studios. It, 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 it was the, the, the gobbling octopus of its day. Gelatinous fact, cube. It was called the octopus. That was its nickname. Uh, and it absorbed DECA and it absorbed Universal and eventually, um, around the mid-60s, they encountered a kind of antitrust problem because as a talent agency that also owned studios and- uh, They're a vertical. Yeah, they were a vertical. And so they had to um, they had to kind of stop acting as a talent agent when they became the sort of master of the- what the the studio and label universe they're they're now distribution and production and everything right um they got uh they bought they got into the realm of publishing they started their own at this point they bought um i guess in the late 50s they actually bought the physical universal studios they bought the universal studios lot you're with, talking the one I mean the one that today is adjacent to the theme park on on Lancashire there. Yeah, that's right. The that that has the you know the uh, the street scene or the street set from Back to the Future sure. and all that. I've only been on that lot once, and I lost very badly on a game show. Did you go to? Did, did you go on any of the rides? Did you go on the King Kong ride? Oh no, I did. I never. I've, I don't think I've even been in the been in the theme park. Yeah, honestly. Just so the theme the park is built on the site of the old, and I, I think they still use the. They still use the lot as a as sets too. Yeah, their soundstage is kind of down the hill. But weirdly, they bought the Universal Studios lot before they ended up buying all of Universal. They were like the landlord first. Yeah, that's right. Um, so then, you know, Universal Studios becomes and 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 its parent company MCA. You know, they become the biggest players in the in the movie and music business. Um, MCA spun off from its from its conglomerate a record label MCA Records starting in 71 and released you know Elton John and all a, a lot of the the great music of the 70s and 80s MCA was was the name of the record label from 71 to 89 so throughout the sordid history of the music business in the 70s and 80s, which I won't get into because, of course, that's 10,000 other omnibus entries. We just don't have the cocaine budget to get into it here. That's right. Uh, uh, well, you don't. <laughs> but eventually, Universal is, um, is purchased by General Electric, 
which is also the parent company of NBC. So Universal becomes Universal NBC. That's who you are controlling. Oh, sure. The chess records masters. General Electric. GE is exactly who, who, who you want. Jack Welch will know what to do. But then that company, decide, NBC Universal, decides that Universal Music Group is a separate property that they don't need anymore and they are, or or rather it has a it has a greater value as something to sell and they sell it to the french company vivendi and vivendi is another one of these uh one of these parent companies you know like a like a media group that owns canal plus television and um you know, is like a major European player in the media. I had space. never heard of them, and then they controlled the world. Yeah, which it always annoys me. Like maybe, the, for all I know, there's some mineral water company from the 20s, and now suddenly they control every they control every every bite of information in the digital universe. So that brings us to the topic of today's story, because at the Universal lot, ah, uh, they did supply water. I was just joking. Yeah. (laughs) I I thought you. (laughs) No, I was just joking. They had some, they have a water utility concession with Paris. You knew it in your heart. It's not mineral water, but they're like a utility. Go on. Um, On the universal studio lot, there was, uh, or there, there, there was an archive that was Mostly a video archive. Mm-hmm. There was a, the Johnny Carson story we alluded to earlier was kind of famous that Carson himself realized one day that they had destroyed all of the masters of his show. They'd copied over with Days of Our Lives and they'd just, they'd recycled it. And he very famously knew the value of his, of his archive and, uh, in, you know, and it, in imagining that he would one day repackage it, uh, realized that it was all gone. And f- in a rage, he assured that every subsequent recording he made was archived. And I think that was that sort of brought to the attention of studio heads a need to treat their archive with more respect. It's true in classic film as well. If we have a good copy of something, it's very often because the artist himself somehow either got the rights back or kept a master or something. Like we have great looking versions of the Harold Lloyd movies, but not the Laurel and Hardy movies because Harold Lloyd took a Harold Lloyd kept stuff in his basement. Yeah, yeah. I, I was watching uh, some Laurel and Hardy movies the other day, and the the prints are terrible, just thrashed. And they did the digital restoration thing recently, where they ended up just using a computer and smearing it all to hell, like you were talking about. Yeah, the tambourine. Yeah, uh, but. On the Universal Studios lot, they had built a large building to house um, to house the the archives, their video archives, and uh, you know, like film wants to be stored at a at a a much lower temperature, I think, than recording tape. And I've had this problem with my own recordings, storing them in my basement. Rec- but magnetic tape is is fairly delicate. It wants to live in an environment very similar to the environment we want to live in. It doesn't want to be too cold or too hot. It doesn't want to be too wet or too dry. That's how you know it's the perfect medium. It, it, right. it likes our ecosystem. It's just like you, us. You can just hold it up to your skin. But there was an, a, an enormous building, a 22,000 square foot building called Building 6197, that was built 
sort of right adjacent to the Universal theme park. Right next to Jaws the Ride. It was right next to the to the giant King Kong encounter <laughs> oh, <right>? ride. Uh, <laughs> I was just joking. Like 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 shared a wall almost. And this the and they called it the video vault, and it was it was mostly full of video, but uh, a very small section of it was given over to storing audio tape. Um the equivalent of about 2,400 different LPs. And the, and the contents of it, remind me how the corporate history worked. This is, uh, the music has now been spun off, but for some reason the studio still has the masters. So what this music represented was some large portion of the archive of master recordings made by the artists of all the different labels that had been absorbed into UMG over the decades, some of them dating back to the 1940s. And master recordings are very different from artist to artist. You know, I'm a songwriter that if I am making a 10-song album, I write 10 songs, and we record 10 songs in a row and my master tapes are 10 songs. You um, use every part of the book. I use every part. There are an awful lot of bands that in making a 10 song record, they record 20 songs and they pick the 10 best. In the case of the Beatles, they would record 20 takes of a song and keep each take. Uh, and this was true in the old days they would, you know, record 20 takes, but they wouldn't record over their prior take. They would record a bunch of takes and then they'd pick the best one. They'd often splice the beginning of one song onto the end of another yeah. um, to make the the final master. But they they had all these other alternate versions. All of these master tapes belong to the label. And at the end of a recording session, if you have a reel that has 10 songs you didn't use – that's also part of the the collected masters. And dating back to the 40s, a lot of artists didn't recognize the value of this stuff themselves. You know, these aren't songs that made it to the album. I mean, I have friends that have an archive of 100 songs they've, they've written and recorded as a band that just never made it onto the album. And I think those are great songs. They were in contention. Do they often think of them as just detritus? Yeah, like, you know, it's we, just like it's just um, the chaff. We, it's the stuff I cut from my manuscript. That's right. I mean, it depends on how you think of your art. But if you are trying to make a 10 song album that's the best 10 songs you have, why would you ever want to release the worst 10 songs from that recording session? But those songs all were captured on tape. And right now, I think, I mean, we may not want um, the worst 10 songs from a Dashboard Confessional album. What if it was called The Worst 10 Songs from a Dashboard Confessional I mean, that album? Would, I'm sure it would sell thousands of copies, but The Worst 10 Chuck Berry Songs from 1958, you'd want to hear, right? Even if they were Yeah, I mean, as the artist terrible. gets more and more prestigious, that's when some of this actually gets released because people do want to hear every alternate vocal take of, you know, Exile on Main Street or whatever. Right, and, and The Stones are a good example of... Um, you know, one of their best-selling albums, Tattoo You, was made out of the rejected songs from the records, from the past five records or the five records prior. 
they needed an album. Mick and Keith weren't talking to each other. And uh, their studio engineer was sifting through their warehouse full of, of um, master tapes and was like, well, that's a pretty good riff and started pulling all these tracks down that had never been finished. Mick hadn't put vocals on it or it had never been. And he basically made an album. Franken album. Mick came in and, and wrote some new, some new vocals. And that's where we get start me up and waiting on a friend. You know, some of the, what we now think of as classic stones. I guess that's the other thing is as the artist gets more and more prestigious, like the rejected songs might be better than the best songs by a less uh, genius artist. And, and you're, you know, when you're picking the best 10 songs, you often think, well, we need a fast one. Right. There's a story, there's a through line. Yeah. We have two songs that kind of do the same thing. They're both five minutes long and they're both slow, but you know, 10 years later, who cares that? You're not thinking that way. Right. Or like, there, there's two songs about a car. What is this, a concept album? We got we to gotta lose one of the car songs. Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and and sometimes you get rid of the one that's maybe better, hmm. uh, because the other one thematically fits. So all of those master recordings that were owned by um, Universal Music Group, within Universal, there were people that recognized that these were truly... Uh, part of our like patrimony, right? Part of our global wealth, cultural heritage. And there were also people that were, uh, that had no understanding of recorded music that were people in a boardroom who were trying to maximize resources and maximize income that had no interest in these archives at all. And the archives were, sort of dispersed across the country. There was a building in, in, in Pennsylvania, one in Nashville, but, uh, this one at universal studios held, uh, like an incredible volume of master tapes. Some of them, most of them not archived at all, huh. uh, because the resources had just never been devoted to digital. Plus their acquisitions. Yeah. Like, right. There's some estimates that only 18% of all, uh, not recorded music, 18% of music that had been released is actually currently available on streaming. So we think of streaming as having got everything, all now. the music, but, it, but really, you know, over 80% of recorded music has not ever been digitized, let alone all the unmixed unchosen tracks by Steely Dan or whatever that still are on tape somewhere. They just haven't been archived. No one has had the time to go listen to them and artists felt somewhat divorced from their masters because UMG owns them and UMG, there are people in the boardroom definitely that don't know or care, but the day that Donald Fagan showed up and said, I want access to my masters. They sure as hell suddenly cared about who owned them. And so artists didn't have the option of going and archiving or, you know, collecting that material back and using it, exploiting it themselves. So at some point, are you going to get, we're going to get a heartbreaking rundown of, uh, of what was in this particular uh, building next to ET the ride? Well, unfortunately there's not enough time. The number, uh, there's not enough time in, in a month of, of omnibus shows so to a, list so a single, a single entry then. <laughs> uh, to list all the artists. I mean, you know, uh, if you think about, if you think about all the artists on all those labels, um, 
in a way it's it's a portion and you think about UMG being the largest one of these massive labels um you know it's it is a huge slice of the heart of popular music and on June 1st 2008 uh some workmen were uh working on the roof of building 61 whatever it was no one of the one of the buildings here uh, at Universal Studios Park um and they were using uh blowtorches to heat the tar mm. uh on the roof and there were policies in place about you know once you're done you kind of have to monitor the the building for a while to make sure that it cools down and doesn't catch on fire and everybody followed those procedures but there was a hot spot that hadn't cooled down and everybody takes off early goes to the buca de beppo on city walk yep everybody's well not takes off early i mean they stuck around till 3 a.m oh okay um but at 4 45 a.m one of these hot spots burst into flame oh just tar you leave tar hot enough suddenly it caught something else on it fire. it just caught fire um i'm not sure about the mechanics of roofing tar but it does seem like it's used an awful lot around the world. It used to be used a lot more. Uh, it seems like there would be protocols in place to keep it from burning down every third house. But in this case, it caught on fire. And the fire uh, ravaged Universal Park. Um, it burned the King Kong Encounter Ride to the ground. Uh, the King Kong Encounter Ride, which was like a super popular uh, amusement park ride that opened in the eighties with a 30 foot tall King Kong. This is like Jurassic Park. Did King Kong escape? King Kong did not escape. The, the King Kong was so realistic for a long time. It was the largest animatronic figure in the world. Um, King Kong had, they actually made it so that when King Kong approached the, the car that people were riding on in the mm-hmm. ride, King Kong actually had banana smelling breath. <laughs> uh, King Kong and all of the King Kong encounter ride, which looked like sort of mid-century uh, New York City, burned to a crisp. Um, Jeff Goldblum's there explaining how this was inevitable. Yeah, it's you know, uh, don't uh, mess with uh, don't r- mess with future. Roofing tar uh, finds a way. Uh, the whole set uh, for Courthouse Square, where Back to the Future was filmed, burned. No. Uh, the New York City set, New England Street, all of these sets that we've seen in countless movies. I was just watching the tw- uh, Twilight Zone pilot, and I it's got it's court it's Courthouse Square or whatever. I was like, hey, that's Hill Valley. That dude's lost in Hill Valley. That's right. All burned. All burned to the ground. No. Uh, the fire raged for twenty four hours. At a certain point, uh, the fire department started pumping water from. Uh, Park Lake, which is the lake that they built for a uh, creature from the Black Lagoon. They used that water to try and put out the fire. <laughs> uh, and in the course of all this, Building 6197 also burned to the ground. Uh, at the time, UMG downplayed it. And a, a lot of this is... Is that ignorance or damage control? Damage control. A lot of this is only known because of an investigative article uh, written in the New York Times that came out a couple of years ago uh, about the devastation of, um, of this fire. 
Uh, the article was written by Jody Rosen, who did a lot of research to kind of expose what had been concealed by Universal Music Group as a um, as a devastating loss at the time. Uh, a writer for Deadline, uh, like in the in the day immediately after the fire, a writer by the name of Nikki Fink, um, was calling out the fact that this uh, this warehouse fire. This uh, this fire in the video archive was actually a great loss to the world of music, but um, UMG was able to to muster a lot of the kind of Hollywood uh, sort of journalist cast, the Billboard magazine and Hollywood Reporter types, uh, to kind of dismiss and downplay these concerns. They said, no, 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 we had duplicates of everything. Everything had been, uh, these were just. That's all you have to say. Yeah, these were just like old tapes. There's no legal document or standard that has to be met. You can just make a public relations statement. That's right. And and for the most part, uh, this happened in, you know, this fire was in 2008. And for the most part, people didn't look into it again for 10 years. Uh, Until the Times piece came out. And what happened was part part of what exposed the uh, what exposed UMG was that Universal having been Universal Music having been spun off by Vivendi was actually renting that space from the. GE controlled NBC Universal. They weren't even the same they corporate even, entity. Anymore. Even the same corporate entity. So while the music, uh, while the while UMG was claiming publicly that no, uh, no irreplaceable stuff had been lost, they then sued NBC Universal <laughs> for uh, the loss of the recordings. And in those in that lawsuit, in those filings, made the opposite claim. That the music, that there was this, you know, irrevocable loss worth, uh, you know, a sort of incalculable number, incalculable number of millions of dollars right. worth of intellectual, uh, like music history lost. And that kind of laid them open to, um, to m- more investigation. And then this New York Times article really blew the lid off of it. That's, that's when I became aware of it because artists started responding. You know, they'd, you know, M&Ms would put out a statement saying, I think our masters are gone or Nirvana or Steely Dan or whoever. Right. The Carpenters and, uh, and Tom Petty, um, a lot of, and it was very difficult to get an accounting. And partly it was because the archives were, um, you know, the archives were maintained by a small and devoted, group of people, a man by the name of Randy Aronson was kind of the chief archivist and they didn't have the money or the wherewithal to have everything to, to have even understood what was in their archive. So, so much of the stuff that was lost, there's no way to even know what was lost. I mean, there Benny Goodman recordings and Frank Sinatra recordings and Ella Fitzgerald recordings, who knows how many alternate takes there were. And the loss in terms of like trying to calculate its value now is impossible to do 
except from a from a almost a science fiction standpoint what is the value of being able to go back and find Ella Fitzgerald recordings where she's talking into the microphone where she's scatting where they're you know where they're doing some tunes that they haven't quite figured out arrangements of what do you even mean by value here what is value yeah, what is value uh if you some of that some of that stuff could be monetized like there's thousands of hours of monetizable stuff there. Not just monetized, but I mean, but like, the, yeah. Then there's the cultural value. I mean, the, a complete understanding of of 20th century music isn't possible without having access to all of that stuff. They estimated, UMG estimated in their lawsuits that they had lost because you know every one of these masters represents an album of 10 to 15 songs. Uh-huh. They had lost 500,000 songs. Uh, some of them songs that, yeah, there are plenty of, of, uh, I mean, Crocodile Rock has not been lost to time, right? Crocodile Rock, we have. But, um, but the original tracks. The original tracks will never be able to go remix, will never be able to go solo the tambourine part. And that is of little interest to most people, but it's of tremendous interest to some. And, the advent of the Guitar Hero era of video games. Um, right, you have to isolate music tracks for, yeah, those, for it, those rock band-like games to work. It really changed the way a certain segment of the media industry looked at multi-track recordings because you could take multi-tracks, separate those tracks out, and turn it into a video game. Imagine what else you could do. You know, you could separate those tracks out and sell that as a, as a game for grown-ups. Like, that's, that's the only language they speak. Right. So, someday somebody might invent a thing where this is a seven-figure asset. If and, you sent me a, a video game where I had, where I could pick ten albums and then remix them myself at home, <laughs> you know that's that would be a thing I would buy, and I think a lot of people would. So there's there's no way to know how much was lost, and part of what makes it infuriating is UMG's dissembling about what actually happened. Um, the fact that. You'd think there should be more accountability, but of course there's not. Those are their masters. You can't file a Freedom of Information Act request with Universal Music. And it's not unprecedented. What's crazy is that there used to be not just fires. Like in 1978, there was a huge fire in a warehouse of Atlantic Records. But for a lot of the 20th century, just like those Johnny Carson tapes, um, you know, the recording tapes would, would stack up in the in the back room until some intern was told to go throw them in a dumpster. These are now taking up too much space. That's, that's how we determine. But as we've seen in the omnibus, what will end up happening is that the records that do survive will be the ones that the future knows best. Yeah, people are getting mad that you mentioned Crocodile Rock. To them, that's their like lost, that's some Dead Sea Scrolls thing they've never heard. Why must... Why must John keep tempting us by mentioning Crocodile Rock? Someday we will hear it. And that concludes The Universal Studios Fire. Entry 1370.PS10618, certificate number 43485, in the omnibus. Now, social media, hopefully, has been lost in a fire forever. But in our day, uh, we were at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and at Omnibus Project across all platforms. Uh, John, what's your parlor name? 
you left Twitter for Parlor, right? Yeah, uh, you my, and John par- Tesh. my Parlor name is uh, American Patriot sixty nine. <laughs> Nice. I can't believe that wasn't taken. 68, 68 and 70, all taken. Yeah, I tried to get American Patriot 420, but but it was taken. So American Patriot 69 in honor of the 1969 issue of the Seattle Times. That's right. You Man walks on moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were uh, available via email at beomnibusproject at gmail.com. I've recently filled up my free Gmail account, speaking of um, fungible storage space, and I now get alerts saying hey you better start buying our google cloud stuff or yeah e- emails will just get flushed s- stop going to well they i don't, I don't th- they kind of vaguely threaten that they will just oh you'll sh- stop getting emails shut off your inbox yeah oh the old ones won't go away what did you fill it up with i don't know just i've used gmail for however long can you use gmail i was a right. very early adopter 15 years right almost 15 years i think and so sending attachments back and forth so i've gone through and started to delete old emails with big attachments and uh i'm i'm uh, universal studios i'm the intern that's gonna have to go fill a dumpster with my old emails yeah i don't know what i don't know how you get i guess you you sort them by which ones have attachments right the the big fatties where i send you like a five minute long video of my cat playing with a ball of string that's what they should have done at universal studios just been like ah this this um lawrence of arabia movie is like four hours we'll, we'll toss this first yeah well exactly like oh these steely dan records god they use an awful lot of Keyboard parts. They, uh, uh, but uh, the Omnibus Project email account is not full. You can yeah. reach us at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You can seek out like minded uh, futurelings at unofficial fora like the futurelings gathering space on Facebook or Reddit or Discord. You can send us physical items to our post office box at P.O. Box. Five five seven four four. This is appropriate for this show, John. Somebody just sent us vinyl for the first time. Say what? Derek worked on a compilation record that I am trying to figure out. It's called "Angry and Unarmed," and there's a picture of an eagle. Is this something you can talk about on Parlor? Uh, I will. Uh, but uh, those people are all armed. Depending on whether or not this is ironic or not. Well, is this is so? Judging from the back, which only has a graph showing the growth of income inequality in America, uh, I can only assume this is a protest record about. Wealth inequality. Right, which is not patriotic because, as you know, in America, we want the rich to get richer because of freedom. If you uh, if you tax the rich, you don't get cool tribute albums with uh, uh, Jill Sobule. Am I saying that right? Yep. I guess the girl, Jill, Jill Sobule, Sobule, and John Doe duets. Uh-huh. Uh, I have, I have uh, worked with both of those people. The funny thing is, this is not John Doe from X. This just told you just went and found a dead body in a <laughs> just, hospital. Just a, and just re- a rando. <laughs> and, and a morgue and recorded a duet. Who else is on that album? Uh, I had So Wayne Kramer from the MC5. Right. Uh, it looks like it's some of the songs have a songwriting credit to Adam McKay of, uh, you know, Will Ferrell collaborator fame. So I think this band, English Teeth, is, a, is some kind of SNL side project. So uh, here... Uh, Here's a very confusing protest record. And wh- is there a note attached to it? Why? Why were we? Uh, why did he think of us? It's very relevant to our topic. Derek uh, was part of this compilation a while back. And it doesn't say in what capacity. And found some of the LPs taking up space in my closet, and thought you might need something to fill out shelf space in your respective bunkers. Oh, nice. So, so he's got a full archive as well. But instead of tossing out old Carson Masters. He is just uh, sending vinyl to his favorite podcast. Well, he's doing the he's doing the smart thing. He's disseminating it, right, or or distributing it so that if he has a big fire, 
and everyone else that has one has a big fire will still have it. Where, but who has the masters to these Jill uh, Sobiel John Doe burned co- up. collabs? Burned up a long time ago, probably. Alice also sent us. Uh, this is for you. Uh, she was cleaning out her basement. Uh, she says that none of her blasters survived her Padawan learners, but she recovered the Rebel blueprints to pass on to your Star Wars oh, loving daughter. The Rebel blueprints to a blaster. It's a big poster of Star Wars weaponry. So if your daughter would like to build her own weapons, this is, I guess, how you do it. Well, yeah, I guess so. That's really, that's pretty attractive poster. It's not all blasters. Here's Chewbacca's bowcaster. Is a bowcaster a type of blaster? I don't know. I've always wondered why it needed to have... Why it needs to look like a crossbow. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but then it works as a blaster. You know, later on, uh, when when, uh, good old Han Solo grabs Chewie's bowcaster at one point, he's like, wow, this is a really strong gun. That's like in uh, in Force Awakens, right? Yeah, and uh, and the idea that it would be stronger, a stronger blaster. It blasts things faster? It has a, it's a faster blaster. <laughs> you gotta have a faster blaster. A- MC faster blaster. Does it have a, uh, does it, like, it doesn't have a string. It just, it has the shape of something that should have a string. Yeah. Well, we're all very confused by how Chewbacca kills things. And why, are, why is Han Solo never mentioned until now? They've known each other for decades. He, they never he, just, t- he just never traded guns with them. They him. just didn't care. Seems unlikely. Anyway, I hope your daughter enjoys that. Thank you, Alice. And thank you, Derek, for pointing out income inequality in a musical form. Uh, you can send us similar items to, did I say, 55744 Shoreline, Washington 98155. Uh, really, the, the material way to support the show is with a currency even better than Star Wars blueprints or... The cultural currency of the master tapes of Chuck Berry's chess albums. Yeah, if somehow you have rare master tapes in your basement, you can send those. Send them on. You could also just contribute to the Patreon, and then we could just join Columbia House. Like, for a penny, we could get seven records. So don't send us a penny, but if you were to send us $5 a month, that would that would be uh, 3,500 records we could get. Seven for a penny. Five bucks a month? That's right. Think about ten bucks a month. We could each get we could each get thirty five hundred albums a month. Then I mean, at some point we're gonna have to buy the two full price ones, and it's gonna be a bummer. Right, that's the thing. That's how they get you. Uh, but uh, and wonderful, amazing perks come with supporting the show on Patreon, including the monthly addenda episode, which I think is pretty fun. It is a fun time. We have a good time over there. Somebody said they liked it better than the regular shows. And nah, I was like, well, is that a compliment or no, not? screw those people. Well, the thing is, they, you can't like it better than the original shows because it's all about the original shows. You it's can't meta. imagine a world in which there is addenda but nothing for it to be addenda of. But you can't imagine someone who only listens to the addenda and doesn't care about the original shows and right. thinks, this is a pretty good podcast. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they're talking about <laughs> half the time. <laughs> Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.